Turn in your Bible, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 15, as we continue our study uh, through uh, 2nd, uh, 1st and uh, 2nd Samuel. We'll begin reading with verse 1. We'll work through the, the whole chapter, but in the interest of time, we'll read a portion of it for now. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Let's uh, go to verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And may God add his richest blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me, please? Again, our Father, we are thankful for the opportunity we have to hear your word, and we pray that by the power of your spirit that you would come and that you would speak your word to us, that we would hear the voice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd in our hearts, and that hearing his voice, his sheep would know him and follow him, that we would see him high and lifted up and offer our hearts to him promptly and sincerely, in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. Trust in God when I've blown it. Last Thursday, baseball fans across the country either saw during the Cubs-Pirates game or on the highlight reel one of the most bizarre plays in the history of the game. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about the game, let me explain. If you hit the ball... And it's not a foul ball. It's in fair territory. You have one option. You can run to first base. You can't do anything else. So if you hit the ball on the ground to someone, all he has to do is throw the ball to the first baseman. He steps on first base and you're out if you don't get there first. That's called a force out. Well, for some 
bizarre reason, when this started to happen last Thursday, the Pirates' first baseman, rather than just step on first base and get to third out, he decided to try to chase the Cubs' batter back to home plate. Now, you don't have to be a baseball fanatic to understand that running back to home plate before reaching first base is simply not a viable option for a baseball player. But the Pirates' first baseman forgot the first lesson I teach my t-ball players. Once you hit the ball, you got to run to first base. There's nothing else you can do. And if you've never seen a baseball game in your life, you can understand what I'm saying. you got to start at first base. Well, long story short, there was another man on third base, and, and somehow during this game of ridiculous game of tag, he just ran down and scored. And then the first baseman got even more confused and forgot that the batter standing right beside him at the plate had to turn around and go back to first base. And somehow he made it safely, and later on he wound up scoring, and the Cubs got two runs long after the inning should have been over. And after the game, the first baseman in question, and I don't want to even shame him by calling his name, the first baseman told reporters that, quote, I will be on the blooper reels for the rest of my life. <laughs> he blew it. He blew it worse than I have ever seen. Though, and I got at least one man here can understand what I'm saying this morning, though Lonnie Smith's base running in the eighth inning of game seven of the 1991 World Series was nearly that bad, and I'm still angry about it, but I, just, I digress. King David has blown it. Adultery, conspiracy, murder, Failed parenting, failed leadership. King David has literally blown it royally. And now King David is paying the price for having blown it. He's now under the judgment the Lord had threatened. The sword is splitting David's own house. Now his son Absalom who had killed his brother Amnon, who had violated his sister Tamar, Absalom conspires to take the kingdom and overthrow his own father. To get a sense of how bad this situation really is, we can actually sympathize with Absalom, even though we know he's dead wrong. His brother did an unspeakable thing to his sister and their father, David, did absolutely nothing about it. Absalom lost confidence in David. And if we're honest, we can sympathize. So Absalom plans to take over 
Look at verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Now, we know from how David uh, interacted in the previous passage with the uh, woman that that Joab sent to David that, that King David would hear the problems that were brought to him. Uh, but Absalom, he goes down uh, to, the, to the gate where the people gathered uh, in those times and he would hear people's problems and say, oh, King David, he, he doesn't have time to deal with you. If only I were a judge, I could take care of this for you. And it says at the end of verse 6 that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And to give you an idea of the kind of, of judgment that David has got himself under by having blown it so badly, you know that Psalm 2, Psalm 2 says that the kings of the earth conspire together to overthrow the Lord and his anointed king. And Psalm 2, it, it's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. He's the Lord's anointed. And it ends by saying, kiss the son, the son of God, lest he be angry with you and you perish. But here, David, who is the Lord's anointed king. He's a type of Jesus, his son, greater son to come. The Lord's anointed, he has a conspiracy to overthrow him, but it's not the, the pagan, the enemy nations. It is his son. In fact, if you go to the end of 2 Samuel 14, the last word before this conspiracy is that King David kissed his son Absalom. He kissed the son. He kissed his own son. But the son is a conspirator. David is, is gotten himself into a world of trouble here. And Absalom is stealing the hearts of the people. And it says that at the end of four years of doing this, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. So Absalom says to to his father, let me go back to Hebron where I was hiding from you after I killed my brother and, and worship, take, 
of sacrifice and worship God. But actually what he's going to do is go back and get his people together so he can take over. Now there's some rich irony in this. You remember when King Saul was falling apart that the Lord sent Samuel down to Bethlehem to Jesse's house to anoint David king. The Lord told Samuel to go down and worship with Jesse and that would be the story he'd give to Saul to give him cover. Now Absalom uses going to worship God as a cover for his plan to overthrow his father. It's as if everything, every blessing is working backward on David. You know, God told his people if they forgot him, he would turn their blessings into curses. And all these things that are supposed to work out as blessings, they're they're working in reverse on David. Absalom goes off, has himself proclaimed king, and then David's trusted counselor, Ahithophel, defects to Absalom. David has to take his family and his people and flee Jerusalem. David has blown it in every way and now he's paying the price for his failure and his sin. The chickens are coming home to roost. But though he has messed up so badly and is under God's punishment, David still trusts him. I doubt any of us has messed up to the degree that David did. I doubt any of us has ever had the successes David had either. But we all blow it. Maybe you feel like, or can remember feeling like, you've blown it so bad. I have blown it so bad. The Lord's not going to help me this time. He, he's done with me. His, his patience must have run out. He's done. No, he's not. This passage assures us that he is not done with us, no matter how badly we blow it. So now let's look in what time we have left at trusting God when I've blown it. First in this passage, we see David's trust in the Lord. His trust in the Lord. And he shows that he still trusts in the Lord in two ways. And the first is that he's not superstitious. Look at verse 24. And Abiathar came, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God, and they set down the ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. Now David is taking his people, and he's fled Jerusalem. And Abiathar and Zadok, the priests, they, they come out with the Levites. They brought the ark, the ark of the covenant from the 
tabernacle where David had it set up in Jerusalem. In verse 25, David tells him, take it back. You remember at the very beginning of the story of Samuel that uh, when they, they went into battle with the, the Philistines, they, they carried the, the ark foolishly. And they lost it. You remember, Saul tried to do the same thing. They had become superstitious. They thought if we have the ark, then God is bound to the box. And if we have that gold-plated box with us, then God is bound. To give us victory. And they lost. They lost the battle. They lost the ark. You remember Eli and his sons died that same day. They said the glory has departed. That's a form of superstition. To try to manipulate the sovereign God who can do whatever he wants to. That's a form of paganism. It was a form of paganism that had infiltrated Israel in that day. It's a form of paganism that is alive and well in Christianity today. That we can somehow manipulate God to do what we want. You remember the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel danced around and cut themselves trying to manipulate Baal. Jesus warned his disciples not to think that if they prayed long enough and used fancy enough words that they could manipulate God like the pagans thought they could You know, uh, we think maybe if I uh, put a Christian symbol on my vehicle, I won't have a wreck. <laughs> I put a Christian art in my home. Everything will be fine. I remember years ago, visiting some people that rarely attended worship services. But they had what they believed was a picture of Jesus hanging over their fireplace. I don't know how they knew it was a picture of Jesus. I've never seen him. I don't know what he looks like. But they said they had a picture of Jesus hanging over their, their fireplace. They said, we're all about that, that man right there. But you don't come to church you don't worship him you don't serve him David tells him take the ark back 
I will not fall for this pagan superstition. Instead, look at what he says at the end of verse 25. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. He's saying God is in charge here. We cannot manipulate God. If he wants us to win, we'll win. We got to trust him. We can't force God's hand, but we can trust him and we can follow him. The sovereignty of God is completely at odds with superstition. So David is not superstitious. The second way we see that he trusts God is that he prays. He prays. Now, he doesn't try to manipulate God, but that doesn't mean he doesn't pray. Look at verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David hears that his trusted counselor has gone with Absalom, trying to overthrow him. And look at what David does immediately. The middle of verse 31, David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. He immediately prays. Let Ahithophel give them terrible advice. Now David, he's not trying to admit, uh, he's not trying to manipulate God. He understands God is is sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do and we can't manipulate him. That doesn't mean he doesn't pray. That doesn't mean he doesn't tell God what he wants. That doesn't mean he, he doesn't expect God to answer his prayer. You know, if you don't believe God has control over anything, what are you praying for in the first place? He can't do anything about it. It's all up to us. But because he knows God is in control of this situation, he's got someone he can go to who has some power. And also note that though all this is happening as a consequence of David's sin, he's still praying. I have felt, and I won't speak for you, but I'm sure, I expect, I'm not the only person in this room who has on multiple occasions felt I was too sinful to pray. I got no business coming before God as bad as I am. You know, there's three words that Jesus taught us to put in our prayers. In my name. In Jesus' name. This is why Christians must pray in Jesus' name. Because I can't come to God on the basis of myself. I am too sinful to get a hearing before God. 
But Jesus is perfect. I can come to him at any time, no matter how bad I am, because I have a high priest, and his name is Jesus, and he is perfect. And in and through him, I can come to the Father with boldness. Jesus, uh, David knew that there was mercy with God. He said, Lord, if thou shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? In other words, Lord, if you're keeping a record of everything I'm doing, I got no way to get in, but with you there is forgiveness. Don't ever feel like you're too sinful to come to God. So we see David's trust in the Lord and secondly and finally in this passage we see the Lord's care for David. We see that in the midst of this judgment the Lord is still taking care of David and we see it in two ways. First, we see what I would call another Ruth. Another Ruth. Look at verse 18. And all his servants passed by him and all the Carathites and the Pelethites and all 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday and shall I today make you wander about with us since I go no, no I." I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. May the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. This man, Ittai, he's a Gittite. He's not an Israelite, not ethnically, but he is uh, a servant of, of David. And, and David said, look, we, we might be fixing to get wiped out here. You, you go back to your people. That sound like anything else you know? When Naomi goes back from Moab, says, I don't know what I'm going to find over there. And she tells her Moabite daughters-in-law, you go on back. And you remember Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. We're going to be buried together. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And you know, Ruth was David's great, great, however many great grandmother. Look at what this Gittite, Ittai, says in verse 21. But Ittai said to the king, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for life, death, or for life, there also will your servant be. Here's another Ruth. I'm not going to leave you. We might die, but I'd rather die with you than live without you. And the second and final way that we see that God is still taking care of David is he gets an immediate answer to prayer. I... I uh, I remember, uh, I might have told you this, but when, when I was in college, I was a member of a Christian fellowship and we had our meetings uh, in a room on campus at, at, on Thursday nights and it was, well, I think it started like 8 o'clock. It was too late, but we're all college students, didn't know any better. 
And, uh, and I had a job. Uh, I, I flipped hamburgers in the afternoon, and, and one of my friends there, I just had it on my heart that I, I needed to invite him to come to the Christian Fellowship that night. And uh, he, I got to work, and he had exchanged shifts with somebody, and he wasn't there. Uh, and so I went and I looked up his, his name in the, uh, in the directory, in the desk, in the manager's office, and I, I called him to invite him to a Christian fellowship since he wasn't at work. And I prayed, Lord, please let this person not think I'm a religious fanatic and, and come on to the Christian fellowship tonight. Well, boy answered the phone. I said, is so-and-so there? And said, oh, he moved out. He don't live here anymore. I said, do you know his number? And he said, no, I don't. So that was that. That night at 8 o'clock, I was standing at the door of the Christian fellowship I was in, and this, this boy, he walks right up. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm, I'm here at our, our Christian meeting. We meet here every, thir- every, uh, every Thursday night at 8 o'clock. He said, now, this is Wednesday night. I'm in a martial arts group meets in this room. We're, we're about to meet. And I, I said, look in there. Does that look like martial arts fixing to happen to you? And he says, is this really Thursday? And I said, yeah. I hadn't been able to, to reach him. I just prayed, Lord, let him come tonight. And there he was. I wish I could tell you I had a long track record, track record of these things happening, but that's the only illustration I got. <laughs> but David gets word that his counselor, Ahithophel, has defected he immediately prays in verse 20, or, or uh, he immediately prays, Lord, let his counsel be foolishness. And then look in verse 32. Immediately, while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I'll be your servant, O king, as I've been your father's servant in times past, so now I'll be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. And he does. This this man, Hushai, he comes, and maybe he has, for some reason, uh, perhaps this physical impairment but but Hushai he'll be a burden it'll be hard for him to take care of and, and they'll probably get a bunch of people killed but see, if you go if you go back to Absalom and and you act like you're defecting like Ahithophel did you can infiltrate and mess it all up he got an immediate answer to his prayer the old uh, hymn writer William Cooper wrote these words sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings, it is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. Here, everything is falling apart. David's under judgment because he blew it. He's running for his life. He finds out his trusted associate has has defected he sends up a prayer and immediately here comes Hushai 
it gets an answer. The Lord is giving David encouragement through Ittai and through Hushai that he's not done with him no matter how bad he's messed up. Now, as I think about what Ittai said, wherever you are, there shall your servant be. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ quoted Ittai the Gittite in John 12, 26, Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. Now, Ittai made a promise that he would stay with David even if it killed him. The Lord Jesus took those words of Ittai and said, you, not I will stay with you, but I will keep you with me even if it kills me. He died to prepare a place that where he is, there we may be also that where he is, there shall his servant be. My friends, you have blown it. I have blown it. We've all blown it. But King David knew he had a God who was a friend of sinners. We have the same God. The God who sent David's greater son who came into this world to die for all the ways we have blown it for all our sin. If we believe in him, we shall be with him and a soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. You have blown it, and so have I. But we can trust him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.